0: Would you please turn your Bible to Romans chapter 14? Um, The song we sang is a good preparation for studying this passage. What will be the vision of our heart? Will it be our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ? Or will it be those things we've become very passionate about as expressions of worship of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ? The irony is... Sometimes our preferences become distractions from the thing we thought our preferences were equipping us to do, which is worship. In Romans chapter 14, I want to read the first four verses. As for the one who is weak in faith, welcome him not to quarrel over opinions. One person believes he can eat anything while the weak person eats only vegetables Let not the one who eats despise the one who abstains. Let not the one who abstains pass judgment on the one who eats. For God has welcomed him. Who are you? Who are you to pass judgment on the servant of another? It is before his own master that he stands or falls, and he will be upheld. The Lord is able to make him stand. You can be seated. Children, you can be dismissed to Children's Church. Uh, Children's Church is available up to about second or third grade, parents' choice. But if you would like to be dismissed to Children's Church, we head out that door, and there's a hallway and classroom on the right, and the children will hear a lesson this morning. And then at the end of the service, you go down that hallway and pick them up when it's over. So this is our second sermon in this series on tolerating individual liberties and in other people. To put those things that are appropriately opinions in perspective. Even though we might be deeply passionate about those particular things. To see that they are not absolutes and therefore not to be imposed on other people. Various opinions on things that are temporary, should not divide relationship with Christians, brothers and sisters, that are eternal. We have to be careful not to divide what is everlasting for what is temporary. You know that this context is talking about the sanctification of true believers. It's talking about sanctification in the context of worship. I beg you, therefore, brothers, by those mercies of God in the first 11 chapters, present your body as a living sacrifice. Do the work of a priest before God. This is your reasonable worship. In that context, we are told to let our love be genuine. In the context of genuine love, we are told how to patiently endure in our diversity of opinions. I spent quite a bit of time last week, can't do it again today, talking about we are not describing our willful tolerance of sinning. If you sin, we read before in our catechism to open the service, the punishment for sin is death. It's severe. Holy God punishes sin. The people of God should have a similar approach to sinning. We should despise those things God despises. When I talk about tolerating each other's Diversity and being patient with other people's liberties I'm not saying we should turn the other way when a brother or sister we love is in sin I'm talking today about corporate in the church cohabitation in areas of a brother or sister's weakness I am going to do nothing to try to explain away weakness we have weaknesses in our faith I'm not trying to explain that away In some way, we all fit that description. How specifically do we accept a brother or sister who has that weakness? Because sincerely, we might want them to not be burdened by unnecessary conscience. Overactive, hyperactive conscience. Saying, ooh, you can't do that, you're condemned for doing that. We don't want our brothers and sisters to feel condemned because we know the word has promised there is no condemnation to those who are in Christ. So we want to liberate our friends and say, don't live that way. We, We have these good motives, but the scripture is guiding our action. How do we patiently endure with weak brothers or sisters who are struggling with particular issues of their liberty? We accept them not to quarrel over opinion, and then there's two illustrations about what that would look like for the first audience. Ours is probably not going to be quite like that. So for the first audience, there are those two illustrations. One we're going to look at today. That is the illustration of diet. What should you eat? Shell, fish, pork, what should you eat? That first audience, that Jewish Gentile church meeting in Rome, Paul's writing from Corinth and the Corinthian church is going through it. And Paul's writing to the church in Rome, telling these Christians, okay, now don't let this come between you. Next week, we'll look at the schedule issue. Some people saw certain days as holy, and other days as holy, and some days as common. Don't let that come between you. So today, as we walk through these verses, I want to show you that what we're going to hear described is a controversy Then, of course, the Lord of the church cares for his church and says, here is a command, how to live in the presence of controversy. And then we're going to look lastly at a catalyst. So I have two points, but I think you'll see that the text breaks down that way. Controversy, command, and catalyst. So in other words, this is a sermon on how do we do individual soul liberty when we're different from each other. So let's pray and trust the Spirit will lead us through that. Father God, please direct us by your Spirit, illuminate truth to us so that it is undeniable, so that you'll protect us from error, so that you'll cause the testimony of a diverse group of people here at Emmanuel, brothers and sisters in faith, to walk in the spirit of unity, to maintain bonds of peace, and to display that we are one diverse body of hands and feet, ears and eyes, fitly joined together by an amazing, powerful, powerful, exclusive gospel of Jesus Christ. In his name we pray. Amen. So how do we do this? Let's talk about the hows. We're going to see in the text the the controversy, the command, and the catalyst. But how do we do it? So this is where I want to add these two points. The first step of how we live out unity in our diverse opinions is we do this as mutual servants who are welcomed by God. Look at verse 2. Mutual servants welcomed by God. One person believes he might eat anything, while a weak person eats only vegetables. Let not the one who eats despise the one who abstains, and let not the one who abstains pass judgment on the one who eats. Here is the controversy. There are people in church life believing they can eat anything, and there are people in church life believing it's appropriate only to eat vegetables, and just to, to raise the, the urgency of this controversy, he believes. This is the word faith. This is his confession of faith. He says, good Christians do this. This is a powerful persuasion to the individual person. They are fully convinced Christ followers don't eat meat, they eat vegetables. They are fully convinced that every Christ follower should not call condemned what God has called clean and you should be eating meat. They are fully convinced. Come to this personal conclusion and I don't, it seems from Leviticus chapter 11 verse 7 where the law describes to the Jewish people that there's some meat that's unclean, don't eat that. It seems from 1 Corinthians 8, where Paul's writing from Corinth, they're going through some stuff because there were Gentiles who had come out of idol worship and they could not eat meat that had earlier that day been sacrificed on an altar to a false god. It seems like the context of Leviticus and 1 Corinthians are both weighing in on a group of Jewish and Gentile Christians going to church together. Here's what I want you to understand. I said it last week. We are as diverse as our background is diverse. So where where do you come from? Where do you come from? What was your background? There are things about that past that condition you. Now listen close. You might say, not me. I know my background was a mess. I'm doing everything in my power not to duplicate it. You're still being influenced by that background, right? You're just describing to me a pendulum that's probably swung too far. That was the case here. And and maybe, maybe we don't know this, the Bible doesn't want to describe it, but maybe there were Jewish Christians in the church saying, listen, I'm going to live in the grace of Jesus Christ, not in the law of Moses. I am going to determine that I won't eat any beef, just pork, from now on. That's still a problem. So the vegetarian has taken over into his Christianity a concern about eating meat. The scripture addresses both these issues. Let's, let's look first. We're going, to take, we're going to go to two passages. First Corinthians chapter 8, which I referred to. Paul's writing from Corinth. There are some things going on there. It seems like Paul is giving a warning, seeing this could happen in Rome too. In 1 Corinthians 8, we're going to look. We're also going to look at Acts chapter 10 in just a little bit. 1 Corinthians 8. <clears throat> we'll go here first. You see right away, top of the verse, now concerning food offered to idols, we know all of us possess knowledge. In other words, we, what he's going to go on and describe is that these idols are nothing in verse 4. So there are people who had a good conscience and said, We can't eat meat offered to idols. For other people, that same conscience made it impossible to live together. Look at verse 7. Paul is not saying that the Corinthian situation was the same situation as in Rome. But he's saying, as to the eating of food offered to idols, in verse 4, we know that, idols, or that the, an idol has no real existence. There's no God but one. In verse 7, however, not all possess this knowledge. But through, look at, and that's what I'm trying to drive home, through former associations with idols. They eat food as really offered to an idol, and their conscience being weak is defiled. Now, I I am not justifying the hyperactive conscience. I am not saying, and I'm going to talk about, I have seven points of application at the end of this sermon And I am not saying that the weak should just be left weak. While we accept them not to quarrel over opinions, we also do the work of discipleship, and we want no one to be left weak in faith. For these folks, their former association with idols, there was some food they just couldn't eat. Now turn with me to Acts 10. In Acts chapter 10, this is a passage where God is basically giving an illustration of a truth to Peter. Peter's struggling a little bit with the aim of his ministry, and God is instructing Peter to stop assuming certain things are outside of God's redemptive plan, namely Gentile peoples. He assumed that those people were more condemned or unsavable, and God comes to clarify to Peter. By the way, Acts chapter 10 is a pivotal point in the book of Acts, as everything prior to this we see ministry to Jews, and everything after this we see ministry to Gentiles. So he says, God's telling Peter to see that the redemptive plan includes Gentiles. And he says to him in this vision, in verse 13, rise, Peter, kill and eat. Because he gives him this dream, this vision. He lowers down a tablecloth from heaven held up by the four corners and it's got on it all kinds of meat, some that Jews had said was unclean. Rise, Peter, kill and eat. And Peter says, by no means, Lord. I have never eaten anything that is common or unclean. Then Peter was able to learn a lesson when he heard God say, what God has made clean, do not call common. What God has made clean, which is imperative to our sermon today, the servant of God, who he makes to stand, don't say he can't stand. God makes him stand. So what God has made clean, do not call common. 1 Corinthians 8, let me, let me just read back there. You don't need to turn. Food will not commend us to God. We are no worse off if we do not eat and no better off if we do. But take care That this right of yours does not somehow become a stumbling block to the weak. Take care that your right doesn't become a stumbling block to them. Different Christians, different practices, tolerance was important. Can you see the struggle? You've got You've got the one who has quote-unquote strong faith. His, His conscience says, I know in Christ alone I stand. Therefore, there is nothing that is off limits. And he looks at the weak brother and says, why are you so susceptible to legalism? And we have heard Christians point to other Christ followers and say, you are living in the confines of legalism. I don't know that we apply that definition correctly. But then we've heard overactive conscience. Ooh, man, I don't think people who really follow Christ, like touch not the unclean thing, avoid all the appearances of evil. Those are all proof texts for why it's just better to take the high road. And we hear that brother or sister that we are in church with, say, my conscience is so sensitive, I'm really frustrated that you are messing around on the proverbial slippery slope. Do you know what the slippery slope is? Do you know what the slippery slope is? Anybody ever put a boat in a dock, in, in at the, the landing? Anybody ever put a boat in? And, and the landing gets real slippery and slimy? And you don't want to go in the water. I mean, you don't, you don't want to drown, right? That's the point. I don't want to drown. But you've got this cement slope. And as the water laps up against the edge, over time, algae collects there and it becomes very slippery, that slippery slope. Now listen, here's the thing. You might look at your teenager and say, okay, I don't want you to drown, so stay three feet away from the water's edge. O- okay. Is that going to help me not drown? Well, if you go in the water, you might slide down to the bottom of the slope and you would drown there. So just stay away from what's not a risk, but it could lead to a risk. That's the proverbial slippery slope. And it seems somewhat reasonable, right? But we apply that to all sorts of things in individual liberty. And the strong brother looks at the weak one and says, you're trying to earn favor with God and that's bad. And the weak brother looks at the strong brother and says, you are living in license and you're playing fast and loose on the slippery slope. And what you're doing now might not be sin, but I'm convinced it might lead you to sin. Now, you understand the motives for both brothers aren't necessarily wrong. I think they both have a genuine and sincere concern for the other. But their approach, ultimately, their trust is misplaced. Both, the strong and the weak, are living in the same error. They're living in the same error. The weak is struggling to confess and live in salvation by faith alone, he's struggling. Yes, salvation by faith, but I think I've got to do my part to make sure the faith survives. Yes, God has saved me on the merit of undeserved grace. Unmerited favor. But keeping me in a working relationship requires some hard work. And then then the strong brother is struggling with that same thing, faith. Faith. Because he is essentially saying, my faith is so strong, yeah, 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 there's saving faith, and yes, 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 the Spirit worked that in me, but my faith is so strong that I have concluded that there is nothing off-limits for me. And They're both struggling with the application of saving faith. <clears throat> This is, a, this is a real controversy in the church. And just because this one's talking about meat and vegetables and diet doesn't mean that there's not controversy like that in our church. I, I took time last week to name several of them. And I corrected my shirt this week. I had a moment last night where I thought about wearing a polo shirt just to illustrate this point. My conscience was very weak. The controversy in this church is the one for this church. But what's the controversy in this church? And it could be any number of things. We should see it, and we should hear the Bible's instruction on how to deal with it, because here's the thing. The Lord Jesus Christ, who gave himself to ransom us as his bride, he cares about the potential controversies in his church. So we don't just have controversy and then, okay, don't do that. We have this command that follows it, okay? Controversy, next command. Verse three. Let not the one who eats despise the one who abstains. Let not the one who abstains pass judgment on the one who eats. To despise is to view as lower. It's to view as lower. So the, the guy who says, hey, this isn't wrong, I can do this. To look at the other person and say, what's wrong with you? You're just not where I am yet. That's to view as lower. Or the person who says, you know, I keep myself clean. I'm living up to the calling of Jesus Christ. Looks at the other person who seems to just go ahead and indulge in the slippery slope. And that person looks over there and says, you're not living up to the calling. To despise is to disdain or to see as lowly. The flip side of a person who's abstaining is to judge. Don't judge. Don't disdain. There's a weakness on part of both parties. Not a weakness in their sinning, but a weakness in standing firmly in the gospel. Uh, For example, both people are concerned that the other person is on shaky ground. In fact, the ground they stand on as brothers in Christ is firm, an unshakable. Turn your Bibles to Romans chapter 8. Let's just look at a couple of verses. I've referenced this one twice already. In Romans chapter 8 verse 1. Romans eight, 1, Paul is lamenting the struggle he has with sin in chapter 7. He gets to verse 8 or chapter 8 verse 1 and he says there is no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. Look down to verse 26. The Spirit helps us in our weakness. We do not know what to pray as we ought, but the Spirit intercedes. We have these weaknesses in faith. We have this lack of information. We have this growing sanctification and its discernment, but the Spirit intercedes and helps. Verse 28. We know that for those who love God, all things work together for good, they are standing <coughs> on sure foundation. On firm footing. Look at verse 31. What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, then who can be against us? Can the strong brother say to the weak brother they're a legalist when God is for them? No. Fast and loose on the slippery slope and engaging in license? No. God is for them. Remember, we are talking about genuine redeemed adopted Christ followers. They are on sure footing. Lastly, look at verse 34. <clears throat> who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died, more than that, who was raised, whose deed is interceding for us. There is in this frustration an error in the gospel. The strong despising the weak is expressing an error in the gospel. The weak judging the strong is expressing an error in gospel. I'll say more about that when we get to verse 4. Let's look at our second point for this morning. How do we accept varying liberties in a way that's unifying? Number two not only born again, but sustained by the Lord and not standards? Do we see ourselves as not only born again, but sustained by the Lord and not standards? In other words, what do you think keeps you in good favor with God? What do you think keeps you in good favor with God? Do you think it's, 90% the blood of Christ, and 10% faithfulness? How do we live with this diversity? As not only born, but also sustained by the Lord and not our standards. In other words, Christians do a great job coming to the confession that it is not by works of righteousness, lest anyone would boast that we are saved. We don't always do such a great job saying we stand in Christ alone. Sometimes we come into Christ and then we stand along with Christ in merit of our standards. So verse 4. At the end of verse 3 and verse 4. God has welcomed him. So again, I want to stress, we are not talking about people who are dabbling in sin as lost people, but rather the servants of God. God has welcomed him. Who are you To pass judgment on the servant of another. It is before his own master that he stands and falls, and he will be upheld, for the Lord is able to make him stand. Now, we get to verse 3 and 4, and this is where we see the catalyst God has welcomed him, accepted him. The strong can't judge the weak, because God, the righteous judge, has already welcomed him the weak with all of their sensitivity to sin is not to despise the strong because God has welcomed him too. In other words, how will we live out this unity in our diversity of liberty? How will we live it out? By seeing people accepted by God. Thanks. Seeing people accepted by God. You know when you twist the top and it makes that cracking sound? It didn't do that. That's okay. I trust you. Here is the catalyst. It's absolutely imperative for us to see that God the judge has declared them welcome. Paul begins verse four with an emphatic you, saying you are not the judge, but God is. You are not like him. He has called them welcome. You should not condemn. He says don't pass judgment on the servant of another. He, it's beautiful that he doesn't say don't judge another man's servant. He doesn't say that. He says, don't pass judgment on the servant of another. God is the other who is the master. We are passing judgment on a servant of God. Now, let me just be clear. This is the only time in Paul that Paul uses this word for servant. Usually, Paul uses the word doulos, which is the word slave, which is very powerful and appropriate in the gospel. We were slaves of sin. Now we are slaves of righteousness, okay? I don't know what you think about the difference between slave and servant, but if you think about it clearly, you understand it says a lot of things about human will. You were the slave of sin, now you are the slave of righteousness. He doesn't use the word doulas here. He uses the word literally for a house servant. This is a, this is a person who becomes like family. Like they work in the confines of the house, they help raise the children, they help prepare meals. There's a lot of fellowship that goes on with the house servant. There's a close relationship. It is helpful for us to see Paul use the word, don't judge God's house servant. That's helpful for us. Don't judge God's house servant. He is God's house servant who are you emphatically to condemn when he in fact has welcomed. And then the promises start to ring true. Here they come. How do you think your condemnation of his preferences is going to affect his standing or falling, verse 4, he will be upheld. Future, passive, indicative. Maybe you know what some of those mean. They mean awesome promise. Future, passive, indicative. So when we look at a brother who struggles with some Issues of choice. And they, they say, I just, I, I, can't, I can't have that alcohol. I, I can't, can't play with those cards. I can't go to the movies. I can't, I can't work on this day or that holy day. I, I have to do this. Is he going to survive that? Yes, he'll survive his weaknesses because God will uphold him. Future, to the end. Passive, he doesn't have to do anything to be upheld. Indicative, God's already done the work. It's not imperative. It's not, all right, friend, uphold yourself. It's indicative, not imperative. Indicative, God has already, to the end, done the work for him he couldn't do. Paul finishes with a reminder, the Lord is able to make him stand. Leon Morris says simply, The Lord is able to make his servant stand, and he certainly will. One church father wrote this about this text. Paul lays down a precept that those who have made the most progress in Christian doctrine should accommodate themselves to the more ignorant and employ their own strength to sustain their weakness. For among the people of God, there are some weaker than others who, except they are treated with great tenderness and kindness, will be discouraged and become at length alienated from Religion. Now, let me just tell you again what he just said. The more light of truth you possess, the more responsible you are to accommodate those with less light. I want to say a word at that point about the stage of life that we are in. Some of you have been in church your whole life. You've been exposed to things. You've learned things. The light has come in. And what used to be some of the dark corners of misunderstanding or poor understanding has been made bright. And you have understanding. You know the things that are lawful and the things that are unlawful. And you can cut that straight. But I wonder... If in all that maturity, you can also put your arm around someone who in their youth disagrees with you and even implies that they're getting it right or getting it wrong. So to put it this way practically, do you find yourself in your golden years of sanctification to be ready to smile and nod When a newcomer to faith, a Christian teenager, says arrogantly, it's wrong for any Christian to go there or do that. Can you internally say, we'll just walk together? Or do you have to open your mouth and say, listen, I've been doing this a long time. I know how this is. I wonder. That church father who says, if you have all that light, then you're not responsible to tie up the new Christian and go through a session of interrogation to try to point out his errors. You're responsible to be patient and enduring with that person. I wonder if we're there. I wonder if we, I wonder if we see all of our understanding of the gospel as a way to be more patient, or as a way to be more dogmatic. So, there are things in our faith family that we have to see as appropriately our opinion. And you are entitled to them, but not as a way to go on debating and arguing with other people to get them to conform to your opinion. They are not absolutes. There are plenty of absolutes in Christian doctrine. See from this passage that not every hill is a hill to die on. That lesson takes time to learn. Takes time to learn as a parent, takes time to learn as a pastor, brother and sister in church. Takes time to learn. When you're raising five-year-olds, it's real easy to see every hill as a hill to die on. And then you're raising teenagers and young adults, and you think, okay, where do I want to spend my credits today? Let me walk through seven points of application here in eight minutes. From this text, we learn a couple things about God's plan for us right here as we sit here. First of all, this passage reminds us that there is a diversity of spiritual and doctrinal maturity in the church. There will always be a range of levels of where we are in our growth. Listen closely. That is not a problem to be treated like a hurdle. That is a providence for us to minister in. There will always be levels of growth that exist in this faith family. There will be some young in faith. There will be some mature in faith. That is not a problem to be eradicated. That is an opportunity to serve in. Second, young converts in young churches are not to be equally imposed with all the truth of Scripture. William Plummer. Old Baptist commentary commentator says this It is not wise to equally equally press among immature converts and newly formed churches all the truths of Scripture. Keep in mind milk for babies and strong meat for men. Let the order be observed. You have a new Christian, and you say, okay, let's, let's get together and have coffee. Lesson one, Andreas Kostenberger's explanation of preterism. No. Now, I'm not going to contend that Andreas Kostenberger's explanation of preterism is not outstanding. Please see me. You can borrow the book. But what I'm saying is there's a time and a place for that. Be patient. Be patient. Number three. Those who are called weak in the faith are not being excused to stay that way. Paul is looking out for those who are younger and more immature in the congregation. But I I believe this. He is gently prodding them by labeling them the title weaker brother, right? So when one of my kids is told to take out the garbage, take out the garbage, okay, and they get it, and it's one of those really wet garbage bags, right? Like there is like watermelon rind in the bottom, and it's heavy, and you can't even get it out of the can, right, now one of the things I'm gonna do on the other side of the room, my wife's sweeter than this, she's not gonna do this, I'm gonna do this on the other side of the room, I'm gonna say, what are you, too weak to lift a garbage bag? and oh, they pull their sleeves up. I'm going to lift this garbage bag. A couple of my kids, a couple of them are wise to me, and they're like, yeah, I probably am, Dad. You got it. <laughs> but a couple of my kids rise to the challenge. Like, I'm not going to be called the weakling in this family. So they, oh, they lift it up. I think that Paul recognizes, anybody in this room want to be called the one who's weak in faith? Anybody want to? Okay, okay all the weak brothers in faith come over to this side of the room, and all the strong in faith come over to this --No. the no one wants to just, yeah, that's me, weak, weak in faith, I'm over here. Nobody wants to do that. I think Paul's aware no one wants to do that. So he is gently prodding them along, labeling them the weaker brother. It's not, it's not the call of disciple-making to stay there. It doesn't excuse them to just wallow in that. Number four, our aim has to include unity more than uniformity. Look at Paul's language, accept one another, don't despise one another, don't condemn one another. We should aim for preventing schism, fractures. When we we teach things, we should think, when we emphasize things, we should think, is a schism going to come out of this? Uh taking a board or a branch and breaking it and all the fractures that come out of the end, that's schism. That's a bunch of people going different directions. Number five. We should discourage doubtful disputation. Disputing about what it's unclear there's going to be a definitive answer to. In other words, we should discourage strife about secondary matters. We should discourage strife about secondary matters. Those words all matter to me. This does not mean that I can't get together with one of my good friends in church and talk about difficult-to-grasp doctrinal presumptions. This does mean that I can't impose that conversation on a brother who walks away feeling attacked. Strife is the key word there. We should seek to avoid strife about secondary matters. All those words matter. There's there's some primary issues in Christian faith that you might not like us addressing, but they're not secondary. They're clear and they're addressed. Number seven. I'm sorry, number six. We should avoid hastily dismissing brothers and sisters. Charles Hodge writes it this way A censoring spirit is hostile to the spirit of the gospel. If we are quick to denounce, if we are strident and harsh and shrill in our denunciation, we need to do some repenting and some reflecting. Give you an illustration. I remember the day I was talking with a small group of pastors, most of them were strangers to me, and they were having a conversation that I was kind of observing. And they were talking about a particular pastor who wasn't in that circle, who had really become liberal in their estimation. And the one pastor said, I knew he had gone liberal when I saw their church and that he had a pulpit that was glass. Now, that has nothing to do with that person's doctrinal stand. Nothing at all. But that quick dismissal, ah, that's how they are. That is a wrong spirit, and it is a spirit that is hostile to the gospel. When we get there, where we write people off because of their secondary differences from us, we should repent and do some reflecting. Number seven, Jesus is not merely our friend and redeemer. He is the judge of the living and the dead. We need to remember, Paul stops here. Look down to verse 9. He he adds this little parenthetical statement in verse 9. Christ died and lives again. Why does he add that parenthesis? Because we need to remember, Christ died and lives again. To be Lord of those who were dead and now alive. He is their Lord, not us. He makes them stand and he will make them stand to the end. Now, we have a lot of talk here about how we do these differences in our congregation. But last week someone asked a question that I want to finish with today. That is, how do we apply this to churches that are different than us? Well, I I want to explain for myself, there are two various applications to that. I can have personal fellowship with churches and pastors that are different from us, where I can't necessarily join with the elders in leading our church into church-wide fellowship with churches that are radically distinct from us in areas of liberty. What I mean by that is there is personal fellowship that we have with brothers and sisters who are not in this church, and it is encouraging. You should not shy away from it. And then there is ecclesiastical fellowship. It's a big word that means like churchwide. That's different. So my answer to that question about the sort of tolerance with liberty that we have as people with people in other churches should be very humble, and, and there should be a lot of uh, a grace in that. But don't assume that that means that as elders we have the liberty to lead the whole church into united fellowship with great doctrinal diversities in other churches. We will have great delight in studying the fine details of areas of Christian faith that are of utmost importance. We'll have great delight in studying all those fine points. It doesn't mean that we can treat every area of opinion like the fine points are all absolutes. Know what your background is. Know what your context is. Expose that to the light of the Scripture. Know that you and any brother or sister who's going to stand is going to stand Because God makes us to stand to the end. Not because we live up to each other's expectations or standards. Let's pray. Father, I pray that in our church there would be a sweet fellowship that transcends areas of opinion. That when there might be appropriate conversation, Lord, when we might talk to each other in a way that's constructive, encouraging, and humble, that it would be helpful. But Lord, I pray that we would resist the temptation to debate and confront each other as if our opinions are required for a brother or sister to stand before the Lord. So God, lead us in this path of righteousness for your name's sake, because yours is the kingdom and the honor and the glory forever. So shape your church to your will and to your glory in Christ's name. Amen.